I'm touching on another topic that I have touched on before, and yet as uh, I've been pondering what I've been doing in this series, I probably should have renamed the series the Dagwood Sandwich Sermon Series. Because I keep referring to that since I have collected materials over the years and that each time I've added to what I previously preached until it's just growing into what I think is the best collection that I have at my disposal on any one of these particular topics. Uh, Because we foresaw the possible eventuality that we might not be able to stream again today because things are in a bit of chaos as people are trying to get back into school mode. Uh, The person who spoke with me on the phone earlier this week said, it's like they've forgotten how to do this. And I'm sure, putting myself in their shoes, uh, they've got to be pulling their hair out. So many logistics to try to deal with. So we have felt great cooperation with the school, but we know that some people have way too many things to accomplish, and they might not get to our need so that we could stream today. So I have scheduled an upload that has already gone out on our Facebook pages, both our closed group page and the public page, that has a podcast with my friend Rick Artis and I talking about this very subject. So if somebody's out there right now, hopefully they're watching that podcast and getting similar information, although I have a few new things, and this is like for our real subscriber list. You guys are getting the primo version because there are some things in this version that are not on the podcast. Uh, If you want to look at that podcast later, you'll find a few things there. But this one is so important, and I really sensed, and I I rarely sense this kind of thing. I have sensed this last few weeks that these messages are so important from God's Word that there has been some spiritual warfare, quite frankly, going on because I don't think the enemy wants these kinds of messages going out. And that's why I think that we need to get them out there even more boldly. Because the time is growing shorter. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know it's one day closer today than it was yesterday. And with all the world events that are going on right now, I want us to be prepared. And so I want all my preaching to really point to the source of our hope for eternity in Jesus Christ. And I want it to be strong and clear and gospel-centered. And with that, we're going to be putting this message out. It may be two days after today, but it's going to get out there. And I trust that you'll keep praying us along as we attempt to get back into in-person worship. And I hope you'll be encouraged by knowing that we're certainly not alone. I spoke with the pastor who shared the wedding ceremony with me. I really had a great kinship with him, Pastor Rich. And they've been going through a lot of the same things we have, and many of the pastors in our association have experienced that same thing. I have some pastor friends in Africa. They've experienced it even to a far greater degree than we have. Uh, One of my friends in Harare, Zimbabwe, they were locked down far longer than we were. And they've had to really make do with some unusual technologies, but they've made it happen. Uh, They've seen, unfortunately, a lot more deaths than we have seen in America for a variety of reasons. So I'm, I'm getting perspective, and it helps me understand that we need to do the best we can for the Lord's sake with what we have to work with and trust that he's going to get his word out to those who really need it. Well, the youngest person who ever asked me this question that we're talking about today was my son. And he was seven years old when he asked me this question. He was always a thinker. Sometimes he was a stinker, but sometimes he was a thinker. And he asked me because he'd been learning in Sunday school about the fact that God created everything. Well, 
So if you hear that God created everything, then his natural assumption would be, so does that mean that he created evil? And I thought, well, that's a really good question. And I wish I'd had this sermon ready for him. Because I think I probably said, no. And he says, who says? And I said, well, I say so. Because that's what we do as parents. And that's what some of these big questions amount to. Uh, we had a great discussion with uh, Tim Buck's father, in fact, just last night. And he said the, the question of authority, and especially godly authority and sovereignty and things like that, it all boils down to, oh, well, who says? And he's right. That's what it boils down to. So we have to dive in to find out how can we understand who says and why we can trust that God is the one who's saying it because he actually reveals it to us and there's an abundance of evidence that we can trust so that we can know that he's the one who says it. That's what many of these messages point to, the evidences that show us that we can trust. When he says, I say so, we can trust that that's authoritative. Well, it's a reasonable question. Did God create evil? I mean, it's one that we ought to explore. We ought not to just pass it off and say, because I said so. We need to find out why we can say, no, God did not create that. As I've said, a couple of these topical messages have brought this to mind. Uh, I really see that as we continue to collect more good evidence, I want to archive it in a way that really gets it out there so that you can look at it again. And so I do want to point you to the Monday Afternoon Theologians podcasts because they are something that if you have friends that you're speaking with uh, and they're looking for some resource, that's one resource you can point them to. We try to be humorous enough at the beginning of each podcast to get people to like us, to know that we're not really that weird. Uh, hopefully, if we are slightly weird, it's weird in a good way, and that they see that we're not crazies. But we do dive into some real good, deep theological discussions. And so it's MAT, Monday Afternoon Theologians. One of my friends, uh, the guy in Scotland, said he thought it was middle-aged theologians. And I said, well, we're approaching Oates, old-age theologians, for that whole fiber Bible diet. But right now, it's just Monday afternoon theologians, and the reason we chose that is because we meet on Monday afternoons by Zoom and we're recorded. That's where the podcast comes from. So I point you to that in case you need something. I was very encouraged by one person who came up to me after one of the messages, and uh, it was the week after that, and he said, you know, it was like last Sunday was a dress rehearsal for a conversation I had with a friend of mine, and I was able to lay out some of the things that you had just preached on. You don't know how encouraging that is to know that God could use what's preached on Sunday later that same week for somebody to share something. I hope that's what happens. I hope that all of us are being better equipped to share our faith in winsome ways and in ways that have a good answer, so that just like 1 Peter 3.15, we'll have a ready answer for those who ask, but we'll do so with gentleness and respect. All right, we're going to be talking a little bit about free will today, and I'm assuming that you know a little bit about free will, but just in case you have more questions about that, next week we're going to really dive into that, about God's sovereignty, and if God is truly sovereign, does that mean that I still have free will? That's next week's topic. So today, we're going to look at the role of choice because of our free will, and how that factors in to the existence of evil, sin, and Satan. Are you ready to dive in? Thank you for that. Good for you. All right, first we need to look at the attributes of God called the omni-attributes. I've mentioned this before. I knew the first three well. I didn't know the word for the fourth one. Uh, the first one is omnipotent, potent, powerful, all-powerful. Second, omniscient. If we are sentient beings, it means that we are capable of knowledge, of perceiving things. And so omniscient means all-knowing, all-perceiving. 
omnipresent, pretty self-explanatory, I'm present on this platform right now, which means I'm here, and you are present among us in this room. So God is not limited by time and space as we are, so he's omnipresent. And then omnibenevolent. You know how we say at the end of our services, God is good all the time? Well, I think we need to change it because I love this word. So I need to say, God is omnibenevolent. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily, but you get the idea. God is all good all the time. And I believe that. I still believe that to be true. Well, the fourth omni-attribute means that he's not just good now and then. He's good, and he's good all the time. He never stops being good. That's important. There's not even a hint of a shadow of evil with God's character. And I had the hymn, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, going through my mind for the last two weeks because I knew that Rachel was going to have it as a call to worship in her wedding yesterday. And I love that. I'm so glad she did. And there's a line there that talks about this. It says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Way to go, Thomas Chisholm. Good words. And they capture this idea of the omnibenevolence of God and not even a shadow of turn, turning or changing, not even a hint of evil in God. But here's the, here's the rub. Unfortunately, mankind has a hard time perceiving God's goodness very often for many reasons. We're going to look at some of them. One of them has to do with kind of projection. In psychological terms, we tend to project our faults on other people. Started in the garden. She made me. He made me. You know, we project. And people have been doing that to God ever since we've been created as well. Voltaire, Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, you know, that Voltaire, the guy who likes stinky cheese. That's the guy who said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Which means that we are projecting our human qualities back onto God, and because we are sinful at the core, all have fallen short because sin entered the world, then we're actually projecting these falling short attributes onto God's attributes, which is why we tend to try to pit some of God's attributes one against the other's. And that never works. If we elevate even one of God's perfectly integrated attributes over the others, it's out of balance. And it turns out that we impugn or call into question or degrade his character. Here's some ways that some people have pitted God's attributes against each other. Some atheists will say, since evil exists in the world at all, then God must not exist at all. And the reasoning goes something like this. If God did exist... And if he loved everyone, if he was all-loving, if he was omnibenevolent, then he would not allow evil to exist. That's their reasoning. Now, if you don't start with the right premise, you could sort of see where they would come up with that. And that's why it's so important, and I keep taking us back to getting to the right premise. We have to start at the right starting point. Here's another way that people pit an attribute against another. If God did exist, and if he cannot stop evil then he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent, which means he may be all-loving, but he's not all-powerful, in which case he's not the kind of God that I would want to really follow. That's their reasoning. See how they're pitting one attribute against the other. Here's one more example. If God existed and he does not stop it, then he isn't all-loving. 
So he may be all-powerful, but he's a tyrant because he's not loving enough to want to stop that. So they're pitting attributes against each other instead of understanding that God is so perfectly integrated, far more than any human being will ever be, because he's God and we're not, then we have to look at why evil exists in the first place, and it's not because of God creating it. So the last few months, and well, going all the way back about four years when we started with the book of Matthew, we started outlining evidence after evidence that shows us why we have a trustworthy word inspired by God to trust so that we can trust the authority that God tells us so that we can understand his attributes more clearly. All these attempts at pitting God's attributes against one another don't start with the correct premise. And the premise needs to start all the way back with choice because of free will. That's where it's got to begin. Let's look at the idea of choice being at the root of evil in the world. First, this is an important thing for us to grasp. Evil is not a tangible thing. We have to understand that evil is not a tangible thing. You can't run to Kroger, the grocery store, and go down the canned food aisle and grab a 32-ounce or a 64-ounce can of evil. I've got to tell you, 64 ounces of evil, that would be a lot of evil. But evil only exists in the absence of good. It's a concept. It's not a tangible, created thing like that. It's not like human beings are created beings. We're, we're tangible. Let's look at some analogies that help us make sense of why free will is so vital in understanding how evil came into existence. First of all, the holes in Swiss cheese only exist if there is cheese in which the holes can be present. Can I get an amen? Now that's heavy. I mean, this is so philosophical. It's like, ooh. Isn't that great? I'm going to say it again because I love it. The holes in Swiss cheese only exist if there is cheese in which the holes can be present. Now, let me illustrate that. Picture a Swiss cheese like the one you can see before you on your counter at home. You have to use your imaginations for this. Are you picturing a big chunk of cheese? You see it? Okay. Can you see the holes in there? You see where they are? You know where they're located? All right, now I want you to just move that off to the side a couple of feet on your countertop. Scoot it over. Now, some of you still have it in front of you. Scoot it. There you go. Put it right over there. Now, look back to where the cheese once was. You don't say, oh, look, those are the places where the holes were. Because the cheese is not there. There's no context for the holes. See what I'm getting at here? Okay. The space where the holes were located is meaningless without the context of the cheese. This means that we can think of the holes in the cheese as anti-cheese. I love this concept. Okay, here's another one. Anti-heat. Here's another way to think about it. Cold is a bit like the anti-cheese. It's like the anti-heat. Because cold is the absence of heat. Take away the heat, what do you have? Michigan in February. Because the heat has been removed because of the axis of the earth and the seasons and where the sun is coming from and we have shorter days, there's not as much heat. So when you remove the heat, what do you got? You got cold. So anti-light, another analogy. Take away the light, what have you got? Darkness. That's right. Darkness only exists in the context of the absence of light. Turn on one itty-bitty flashlight, even a pin light, or light a match inside Carlsbad Caverns, 
or Mammoth Cave, and it's amazing how much light is produced that you can see, even the reflective light. These analogies are trying to help us get at something that I hope will start to become clearer and clearer as we move through this. Evil is not a created thing. It only exists in the absence of something else. And so there has to be a context of something that was created first, something that is there already, and when that is removed, then you have this concept. So it's the hole when the cheese is removed. It's the cold when the heat is removed. It's the darkness when the light is removed. Now, if you remove God and push him off to the side, what have you got? Evil. Evil is what you get when you cast aside good. And since God is omnibenevolent, He is good all the time. When you cast aside God, you have cast aside good, and therefore what you've got is evil. That's the premise. When you start with the right premise, you come to the correct conclusions. The right starting point when it comes to determining where evil comes from is the world at the very beginning. So let's go back a certain distance historically. God created the world, and human beings were given the ability to choose. That's free will. He did not want us to treat him or to try to, quote, love him back as robots, because that would not be true love. Can't do that. Love can't be forced. You've seen uh, evidence that there have been people who have been kidnapped before. There's one young lady that was kidnapped and kept for years, and then she finally escaped. But the kidnapper felt that he needed this family, and so he was forcing this person to love him back. Is that true love? Absolutely not. That's tyrannical. It's horrible. can't do that. That's not true love. God knew that. He is all-loving. He knows that true love has to be reciprocated willingly, and so free will has to be given if there is to be true love reciprocated, which means that he also has to allow to choose to reject. And you would think, well, If he did that, and if he's omniscient, and he knew what was coming, why didn't he do something about it? He did. That's why we have the cross. So, there's a postponed punishment that is seen here. I've heard some people, I've had conversations with some people that said, yes, but we're actually still being held at gunpoint, because we know that if we don't choose God, he's going to condemn us to hell. And I would say, you're misunderstanding that conversion of attitude. Because the postponement, the reason he doesn't do it right away, is so that we can learn from the consequences of what happens when we push good to the side. And then once we understand that, we can say, oh, I get it. Everything that he's doing is motivated by love for me. I want to love him back, and I want to do so willingly. And that is conversion. And that's why he says, the Lord is not slow. This is what 2 Peter says, 3.9, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He doesn't come in here with his finger on the smite button and take care of all the injustice in the world. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every parent knows that. Parents, you know how difficult it is to be consistent in discipline. I remember some days that I'd crawl into bed exhausted at night and think the only thing I did all day long was discipline. (laughs) No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, there's another five minutes in the timeout chair. No, quit putting screwdrivers in the light socket. No, you can't do that. It's exhausting. And I'm sure that God must be exhausted at times trying to show us by our own consequences that we are the ones who are choosing to cast good aside 
And if anybody's condemned, it's because we're condemned already because we have rejected the name of the Lord. It says so in the Scripture. We're the ones who choose it. We're the ones who choose to be separated from God. He is working diligently to draw us to Him because He really desires that all of us, if it were to be possible, would come into this loving relationship with Him. Now when a child gets it and the light bulb goes on and they go, I don't like it when that happens. I'm going to stop putting this screwdriver in the light socket. Then the parent says, my job is done. I've taught them something and they learn from it. Yay! And then the child grows up and has this wisdom and they start to learn some point in their lives, my parent was pretty smart. And my parent loved me enough not to want me to get zapped and to get frizzy hair. And so they loved me enough to establish boundaries for me. Since we're created in God's image, and since we are a microcosm of the Trinity, when we see relationships on earth, if we see a good, healthy, nuclear family, then that's an example of what God is doing for us. He's trying to establish boundaries. Why? Because He loves us, and He's trying to give us the best life possible. The best life possible is when we surrender into His will, because His will is always for our best. Now, the origin of evil, choice, all about choice. This is the right starting point. If we're going to come to the right conclusion, did, Christ, did God create evil? No, because of free will and because of choice. So if evil is the absence of good, then what happened in the Garden of Eden was the starting point for human choice. And the main lesson for us in that story in the Garden of Eden is that choice matters. It's vital that we go all the way back to Genesis to capture this. Otherwise, you can pit all these attributes against each other and impose our human sinful tendencies on God. It's all about the choice to either obey God by doing things that He says will bless your life or to disobey Him, push Him off to the side and therefore create problems for yourself because of the consequences. So when God says, I want you to live this way, walk in these ways, because I love you and I want what's best for you. Not just now, but for eternity. I want you to have this best stuff, but forever. And if you'll just simply surrender into my goodwill for you, you can have that. But if we say, no thanks, I know better than you. I'm going to do it my way because I want what I want. And I want it now. Then we choose to reject God and therefore we reject good and what we have left are the negative consequences, and those erupt into evil actions. So, think of all the evil that has been unleashed in the world because people chose to do the opposite of what God teaches. And just for a really quick summation, as sort of a, a distillation or an extract, you know, a vanilla extract, super strong. I mean, it's boiled down into its essence. And this is an extract of God's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm only going to give you just a few very brief examples here. Here's an extract of God's teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When people choose not to be poor in spirit, they push God to the side. They say, no, blessed are the prideful. Well, the Bible says, no, cursed are the prideful. You see these juxtapositions all through the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And the world would say, oh, blessed are those who hunger after self-satisfaction. And the Bible says, no, cursed are those who hunger after self-satisfaction. Or blessed are the peacemakers. 
And the world says, no, blessed are those who can manipulate and power their way through to gain more power and control. And the Bible says, no, that's backwards. The meek will inherit the earth. You see all these juxtapositions because God has been trying to usher in His kingdom that are so opposed to the world that some of the things that we're talking about are foolishness to the world, including the cross, where the solution took place. Now, let's back up even farther than that, because there's the personification of evil that happened even before the Garden of Eden. Even before Eve took that bite of the forbidden fruit and then coaxed Adam into joining her in the new taste treat, the angel Lucifer chose to reject God. He wanted what God had. He wanted God's authority. He wanted God's power. He became enamored with his own beauty and power and intelligence. And so he rejected God, and in result, he became Satan. So here's the deal. God created Lucifer. Lucifer created Satan because he made a choice. He chose to reject God. So this is at the crux of it. This gets all the way back to the beginning. If we're looking for a timeline to say, well, when did evil get created? It got created when Lucifer rejected God. And then he got thrown down. There are several passages that speak to it, and they're difficult to interpret because they're a little strange, and you have to piece together some things and be a good exegetical investigator. But you can see it in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and Luke 10, 18. But this is like the anti-cheese or the anti-light or the anti-heat. It's the anti-God, which means that it's anti-good. And that's what Lucifer became. He became so impressed with himself and with the position that God had that he lusted after the honor and glory that only belongs to God and no one else. And this self-focused pride represents the beginning of sin in the universe, even before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Most biblical scholars believe that Lucifer is the one described in Ezekiel 28:18, which indicates that Satan was cast completely out of God's heavenly government. And he was stripped of his angelic authority. So the result of Lucifer's pride and arrogance, the rejection of God, meant that he became omnimalevolent as opposed to omnibenevolent. I think a rapper has got to come up with a song using those two words because they're so good. Omnimalevolent, which is completely diametrically opposed to omnibenevolent. And so there is a huge separation, a dichotomy between Satan and God, because Satan is everything against God. He's completely opposed to everything that God is. So what turned Lucifer into Satan? Choice. Lucifer's choice. Choice is the key. And we humans, as I mentioned, we have a hard time with the concept that God is all good all the time because we keep trying to recreate him in our own image. And therefore, we have a hard time grasping that some of the things he's telling us he doesn't want us to do is not to make our life miserable, it's trying to make our life better. Better than we can even imagine. Paul knew about the sinful nature, which makes it so difficult for us to comprehend God and his goodness. He wrote about how difficult it is for us to comprehend this all-reaching goodness and his desire for us to love him back. He says so in Romans 11. Verse 33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable 
How unfathomable, in some translations, are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. Now, Paul had taken a ship to Rome. He's writing to Romans here. He would have known how they sound out the depth when they're getting close enough to a shore or if they have to go up into a river. He knew that they would use a particular device, and it comes, they say sounding. Now they're using actual sounding, like sonar, but it used to be from the, a word sund, which means measurement. So they would be sounding out or sunding out the depth. And there would be a rope, and they would have little different uh, leather strips tied at different levels so that they could pull that thing up and understand, oh, okay, you put the lead weight at the bottom, as soon as you feel it hit, then you see where the, the leather is. You can tell how deep that thing is. Uh, one fathom equals six feet, just in case you need to answer a trivia question coming up at some point. Deep six meant six fathoms or 36 feet. So if you're going to deep six somebody, it doesn't mean you're just putting them in the ground for six feet. It means you're really putting them down, 36 feet. Mark Twain, by the way, meant the depth of two fathoms, which is 12 feet. And yes, that's exactly where Mark Twain took his name from, his pen name, from, I guess he's 12 feet tall, I don't know, but... And so, I know, that was really funny. You could laugh at that if you'd like, but okay, thank you. See, we don't get the microphone set up here so that we can catch the audience response. And when I was editing myself preaching, I'm preaching to real people, and they do the wide shot, and there are three people in frame, and I just tell this whopping joke, and there's crickets, crickets, crickets. So thank you for providing real-life laughter. I appreciate that. So one reason that we humans have a hard time accepting that God is perfect is because we have a limited perspective. It's like a submarine ride, submarine perspective. When I was a kid, my cousins went with uh, my dad and mom and my aunt and uncle, and we all went to Disneyland in California because that was closer to where I grew up. And we went on a submarine ride, and we were so excited. My cousin Bruce, who is still a child at heart, he is my age, and he has got such a giddy, childlike view of the world, and I love it. <laughs> And he was saying all the way to California, we are in the car. He goes, oh, I hope I see a whale. Oh, I hope I see a whale. I really want to see a whale. I want to go on the submarine ride, and I hope I get to see a whale. And we got inside the submarine, and we sat down, and they closed the hatch. Clink. And you could hear the engine start up, and he looked out underwater, and he goes, maybe I better hope I don't see a whale. <laughs> but we could only see through a tiny portal. So all we could see was one tiny little bit of space out to our right or to the left if you were seated on the left. That's all you could see. You couldn't see in front of you. You couldn't see behind you. You couldn't see below you. You couldn't see the surface of the water. It's a very limited perspective. And that's kind of what we see in terms of God and all of his omni-attributes. We can only see through a tiny little itty-bitty portal because we're so limited in our sight because we're humans. Paul's analogy was like looking through a foggy mirror, looking through a dim mirror. We have an old mirror that used to have the old style of stuff, or they would put some quicksilver and some other chemicals. I don't know what they are anymore. But it, they would get real dim over time, and they were very ineffective. And unless you have a lot of good light in the room, you can barely see yourself in that mirror. And he would say, sometimes back then it would be just polished metal, he would say, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, meaning then when we get to see him, it's going to be face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And the reason that we know so little is because we're distorted by sin. Our view of God is distorted by our sinful nature. We look through this filter that's 
stained or tainted or dimmed by our own pride and our self-sufficiency and our lack of ability to see things the way God might see them, we tend to project those sinful tendencies on others and sometimes we project them on God and His character. One day He's going to make it abundantly clear. In this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I call it the flat forehead passage. There are so many things that I think I have known really well. I think I've known them. But one of these days, he's going to explain everything to me, and I'm going to smack my forehead because I'm going to say, oh, now I understand so much better. Now I understand that. Now I'm looking through a mirror dimly, but one day it's going to be so clear. One thing we do know, this is the good news. I said, every message needs to be pointed to the gospel. This is the gospel. Fortunately for us, God communicated to us very clearly in a way that we could comprehend. He made it crystal clear what he thought about us and how he wanted to remove that distortion and how he wanted to bring us into a right relationship with himself. So he came down in our form, spoke our language, became incarnate, came into our culture so that we could see just how much God loves us. That is where we need to be pointing so that we can understand, okay, now the origin of sin makes sense. Because he knew this was going to happen and he made provision for it. He became a living and dying example for us to show how much he loves us. Jesus on the cross is God's way of making his love known perfectly. Last week I said that the best place for us to go with our hardest questions, our toughest questions, is to the cross. Because that's where all these other things start to make sense. That's where we need to start unpacking the difficult questions because then they start to make sense. If we start somewhere else, we're going to try to throw our own human tendencies into the mix and it's going to become very philosophical and deep and wrong. We need the cross to be able to give us the answers we need. So, did God create evil? No. No, God's justice and mercy came together perfectly on the cross. God dealt with the consequence of sin, which he had to do because he's holy. But he did so by extending his mercy. And he did that because he is omnibenevolent. All of his attributes come together on the cross perfectly. His perfectly integrated character all come together on the cross. Think about what the Bible would be without the cross. It would be a drama without a climax. I was listening to something on NPR in the car, and I had my GPS plugged in, and I was coming back on the way from someplace. It may have been the wedding rehearsal, and I, I knew how to get home, but you know, I'm starting to doubt myself, so I plugged it in just to be sure. And there was a great story going on on NPR. Just when they got to the punchline of the story, it said, turn left at the next stop line. Ah! You know, and the killer is, turn right at... That's what the Bible would be without the cross. We would get right to the punchline. We would have the meaning that was about to be given. What's the meaning to life? And without the cross, it would be meaningless because we would have missed the main point. The cross is the main point. That's what we need to start with. And so many people want to just push that away. Some people can't understand why we would turn an item of torture, a device that's meant to torture people, into our symbol of victory. But there is victory in the cross because that's where God took care of that downward spiral of sin that started in Genesis chapter 3. The cross is so important that the Apostle Paul, who knew a lot of stuff, 
said, I have determined to forget everything that lies behind me. I am not going to remember any of that stuff. I'm only going to remember Christ and him crucified. That's why it was so important to him, because he saw the cross as the answer to the spiral of sin problem that started way back at the beginning because of choice. So even though it appeared that Jesus was extremely weak to the people who didn't understand what I'm saying today, Christ demonstrated such strength and such strength of character. By his substitution on our behalf, Christ disarmed the authorities of darkness. He put them to shame. He triumphed over the powers of darkness on the cross. Paul tells us that in Colossians 2. So when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to be with his Father, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power. So if we're going to ask, well, who says? He says. And we can trust him because he demonstrated that he has that kind of power by being resurrected from the dead and ascending to be with his Father. So because of our sin-tainted distortions, the cross to many is foolishness. The conversion of faith happens when we start to understand, God loved me enough to take care of that problem, and now I choose to love him back because I could never pay him back. That's the gospel. And Paul says we should preach a gospel of hope based on that cross. That same cross is a stumbling block to many. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to us, it's a symbol of victory. I'm so thankful for the people in my life who demonstrated through their actions and words what we celebrated in communion because all of that points to the cross. And I pray that we will be influencers of people around us so that one day they'll get it. They'll have the light bulb go on. They'll have that conversion of attitude they'll start to love him back knowing that he loved us enough that even though we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Let's pray. God, our Father, I'm so grateful that at the cross where I first saw the light, the burden of my heart rolled away. And I'm grateful that it was there by faith I received my spiritual sight. And I pray that many, many others would see your goodness and grace and recognize just how loving and selfless and generous you are since you have done everything necessary to reconcile lost sinners to yourself. I pray that we will each consider the significance of choice in our lives because each choice we make makes a difference about how we're influencing somebody else and whether they can see the goodness of God represented in our character and in our lives and in our actions. And I pray that we will choose to make choices that honor you so that generations that come after us if you tarry that long, we'll see the evidence of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.